And here we are, episode number 91, Cinema Squabble, Adam Gerke, Sarah Michelle Fetter, Steve Reeder, some of Seattle's film critics. We are a number of the critics that actually have been gathering in theaters for years. We have a conversation usually sitting in the front little press row, and now we bring that conversation to you in podcast form. I like that it's episode 91 because... You know, 1991 was the year of Beauty and the Beast. That was a big year. Yeah. Wasn't that also the year? I feel Science like of the Lambs. Uh, yes, Clarice. Yeah, I but I'm just saying Beauty and the Beast has an importance for today's discussion in a way. Why is that? I don't know. We is could just it... be saying Hakuna Matata and just go on with our lives. Well, but that's Beauty and the Beast. That's It's still Disney. Uh, okay, but then so is Toy Story. I mean, we... Yeah, which was awesome. Yes. Okay, so things to, <laughs> things to chew into and tear into a little bit. Uh, yeah, of course, we'll be discussing Lion King, also uh, uh, The Farewell and Stuber here in just a moment. Also want to make a point of the fact that we've got the director and lead actress uh, of Cuddle the Series. That'd be John Heldy and Hope Shanti coming up in just a little bit. So we'll feature them here momentarily. Uh, we get to snuggle with Cuddle? We do, as a matter Yay. of fact. We'll move all the mics just a little bit closer, turn up the headphone volumes just a little bit louder, and it'll be so intimate. All right. Just like that. That'll do. Um, feeling a little bit of love for Stuber, I think, is the question mark. Sure. All right. So this film came out uh, last week. This is the gist, right? You've got uh, a buddy cop film, right? You've got uh, LAPD duty is he a detective? Yeah, he's a detective. Because he's an official detective. He's a detective. Vic Manning. It's Dave Batista. Yeah. And uh, big man. He's a man. Is This is like a, a passengerless tractor of a man. <laughs> he is able to just barrel his way down halls. And uh, he's on a mission to track down his partner's killer and serve justice. Uh, and timing is everything, because just as luck would have it, he's supposed to have LASIK surgery. His daughter's supposed to have an art exhibition. And yet his eyes have been surgered. And he gets the call of a lifetime Hey, the guy you've been searching for for the last umpteen months is back. The deal is going down tonight. You got to get this guy. So blind as a bat, he sets out, but realizes he can't do anything. So he calls Uber and uh, (laughs) enlists his Uber driver. Stu. uh, Stu. Camille Nanjiani. Thank you. You're welcome. Camille Nanjiani, who you may remember from The Big Sick. And uh, Oscar nomination for the Oscar nomination, nonetheless. Uh, Stu comes in. And uh, gets nominated nominated to uh, help out in the in the in the crime bust here, and uh, catch the man. It's brawn and brains together. Let the good times roll. That's that's pretty much the, it. I mean, the, it's, it's a it total yeah. It's a total '80s action comedy buddy cop throwback, but not even. You know, it's not like a throwback in that way that it's like 48 Hours mm-hmm. or Lethal Weapon. No. It's more of sort of the second tier of those films. Um, probably most notably, uh, Peter Himes' um, somewhat cult favorite, Running Scared, with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. Mm-hmm. It's very similar in, to, in tone and structure as that film, where you take two really unlikely Actors mm-hmm. who you would not ever expect to be paired together in an action film, throw them in the middle of it and see if it works. Yeah. And I got to say, the two of them together works. Agree. The chemistry they are fantastic. Really enjoyed the chemistry. The, you know, you've got Batista's physical comedy, mm-hmm. but then he's also got some psychological comedy going on there as well. So he's actually, I think he's kind of got the best of both worlds going on. He does. And then Kamel comes in just throwing the quips left and right. Well, and I like how this film, you know, (laughs) this film really ends up being about varying degrees of masculinity and really kind of puts a lot of subjects that are under the microscope right now, especially as it pertains to like toxic masculinity and, you know, um, uh, 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 
and that kind of thing and and really has this sort of really R-rated nasty discussion about it but in a way that's actually complex and interesting and funny. Mm-hmm. Well, it's awkward when it addresses toxic masculinity because it has a very high degree of violence sure. some of which is clearly not played to be darkly humorous. That's the awkwardness in this story. As far as chemistry goes, I've got to disagree with the two of you. I think they have very little chemistry. I think Batista's main contribution to the film is his physical humor. There are two or three running physical gags that really are successful. I think if it weren't for Nanjani's running commentary about maintaining his five-star rating and his poor vehicle (laughs) and stains here and all the rest while trying to impress his girlfriend and this, that, and the other... I think the film might have broken down altogether because that, to me, is the ultimate through line to the story. Hmm. It's Nanjani's wisecracking. So much so, I found myself thinking, how much is he improvising this? How much of this was written by the the official screenwriter? And how much did he write himself? Because it's so integral to his character. Mm -hmm. It works. It's not that Batista's bad. But I think they're trying to stretch him here to a point that his talent can't reach just See, yet. and I completely disagree yeah. with you. I actually think he's, I think Batista is very good in this film. I think he yeah. does a really nice job. I love that he doesn't take himself so seriously that he actually finds a lot of the heart and the warmth and the peace. And I love the chemistry that he has with Nanjiani. I think the two of them really work very, very well together. And for me, that's what makes the film because as much as I love director Michael Douse's hockey comedy goon, He's not a strong action director. That I, um, I would agree and, with that too. And other than the opening prologue, which is kind of terrific, the remainder of the action in the film isn't great. Yeah. Which is really a shame when you have the star of the raid as your main villain and you can never see him actually fight and he's one of the best cinematic martial I'm, artists working today. I'm glad you got around to that Iko Uais, the yes. Indonesian actor from both raid films. He's <laughs> terrific. Unfortunately, he has kind of a stock stereotypical role, doesn't get to do much physically. No. He gets to act in English for a change, but he's basically wasted in this story. Yeah. And again, he's sort of a cardboard but extremely violent character yeah. in the story. Yeah, but, but, but that does kind of do a throwback. If you do want to see really well done action, they're in. The Raid and The Raid Redemption, I think, are both oh, two sure. excellent. I mean, your your eyeballs are numb by the time you're done with the thing. Landmark but that's also the yeah. thing. It's like, you know, you look at the way, you know, because again, this does feel like an 80s throwback. Mm-hmm. But you look at Richard Donner, who did Lethal Weapon, or you look at Peter Himes, who did Running Scared. They were very old school, um, very technical directors who allowed takes to go on, didn't feel like they had to over-edit things. They allowed you to see what was going on in the frame. You know, Running Scared, one of the best has one of the best car chases probably of all time, and it's because they actually film a car chase on Chicago's L. And there's not a lot of edits in that. It's really (laughs) spectacular to watch. At a certain point, Douse just chops this movie to pieces, and it really becomes unfortunate because I enjoyed the heck out of it, except for the fact that I wanted to be excited by the action, and I never was. Not quite. I would also like to give a shout-out to one of the relatively lesser characters here, Betty Gilpin, (laughs) as Becca, the wannabe girlfriend of the uh, Kumail Nanjani character. She is so good 
at topical comedy in Nurse Betty and just about every place mm-hmm. else that I've seen her. She's very, very good in a limited role here. Her line reads are spot on. Her presence is excellent. I mean, she's very, very good. I appreciated her timing and and her few, sadly, few appearances throughout the film. So, Steve, where are you coming on this? I mean, you, you said you don't like it, but you do like it. Is that a theater? Is it a rent? Is it a skip? Oh, it's, it's definitely a rent down the road. No okay. no need to see this in a theater. Okay. I, I don't think there's enough visually going on or, or even in terms of plot to merit going to a theater, no. Okay, and Sarah, how about you? I like this movie. Even with my reservations in regards to the action, I still can't go with pay for a theatrical ticket, so I'm going <laughs> to say rent. But it's a really strong rent because I had a good time with the film, and I know I'm going to end up watching it a lot when it's on Blu-ray. Okay, well, and I'll split the difference on this. Now I'm going to actually go into the theater category. Going, ah. if I did though, I'm going matinee, and it's a date sort of thing. There you go. You're looking for the entertainment factor. <laughs> it's a brisk 94 minutes. I know. What you was the last have... time we had a 94 minute action comedy? Right. What so the heck? You're in. You're out. You're off to dinner, and even the Men in Black movie was 30 minutes longer, and they're never more than 90 minutes. <laughs> See. That's my point. So I know. This, is, this totally works. I think it totally works. I enjoyed it, even though, yes, I did find the, the overall plot, uh, kind of like what you're saying, it didn't really do anything adventurous or new in that regard, but uh, I did enjoy the humor through and through. Uh, this week, though, yes. Steve, you and I had a chance to sit down and watch something. A lot of folks had a chance to catch up with this at SIF. Because you guys are losers. Well, the official closing night <laughs> well, film. Hold, hold the phone here for okay, a second. You were in Europe. I, I was get gone. It. It's and, fine. And Steve here, no slouch to Sif. How many? How many films did you catch this year? Steve? Only 112. Oh my god. Only 112. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So never mind. You're yeah. not losers. See, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Set this up. Tee it up, Steve. Had I seen this at Sif, however where it was the official closing night film. It would have been in my top 10 out of those 112. This is a story based on an actual lie, <laughs> as we're told at the beginning of the film. It is one of my favorite movies of the year. It is The Farewell, written and directed by Lulu Wang and starring Aquafina as a young Chinese-American woman living in New York City who finds herself, against her parents' wishes, traveling to China, not so much back to China as to China, for a very special and ultimately kind of sad family reunion. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give away too many no, spoilers be or, or too much insight. I think you can say what I think they, you can, I think you can say the why they're going premise, though because it's they're, revealed in the trailer and everything. Yeah. All right, they are going there because the matriarch of the family, Nai Nai, uh, may have serious health issues, mm-hmm. and so they decide to basically perpetrate this marvelous. Uh, faux story. <laughs> I, again, I don't want to say exactly yeah, no, the nature of that story, but but they create a scenario specifically for Nai Nai in order to give themselves an excuse to come from Japan, yep. to come from the States, to come from other parts of China for this grand family reunion. The miracle of this movie, one of its many strong suits, is that it can be so culturally specific mm-hmm. to China, to the Chinese culture, to the Chinese sense of family and to Chinese Americans, yep. as separate from native Chinese, while at the same time betraying all kinds of universal themes and ideas. Mm-hmm. We talked about this after the screening just yesterday, Adam. Yeah. I'm looking at this marvelous actress, uh, Shen Chen Chou, who plays the grandmother, Nai Nai, 
And I'm thinking she is a thoroughly Chinese grandmother in her attitude toward her children, her grandchildren, how you stage certain kinds of family events mm-hmm. and public events, how you treat family, how you host family, how you love your family. And at the same time, I'm thinking, that is my French-Canadian grandmother. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, change the language, and there you have it throughout this film. Aquafina. Uh, who I still insist was the best part of Crazy Rich Asians, the movie, she shows remarkable range. She is a real talent because this is, we haven't talked about Mm -hmm. this, this is also a very, very well-calibrated balance of comedy, melancholy, nostalgia, serious drama. Mm -hmm. There's not a false note, in my estimation, from start to finish. It's beautifully balanced, and Aquafina has to do a lot of it herself as the central, pivotal character. And by the way, she had to learn Chinese, right? which yeah. she did not speak in advance of pre-production here. She had to learn a sufficient amount of Mandarin mm-hmm. to do that part of her character. In short, I love this film. It's just beautifully calibrated and shot and realized in almost every way. I think, you know, anybody that's watched Aquafina's work, whether it's her music career or it's her, it, she's in Ocean's 8 or in Crazy Rich Asians, we knew she could do the comedic aspects. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's just a given at this point. We knew she was going to pull that off. Did you you know she was going to pull this off? No, she broke my heart in this movie, and I mean that as a positive. She's stunning. Um, It's maybe my it's maybe my favorite performance from anyone so far this year. I I just it's the layers that are in this, and the and how she goes from wisecracking. not quite foul-mouthed comedy to dead serious melodrama at the drop of a hat and makes it believable and makes it work. I mean, it's almost Betty Davis-like a couple times. (laughs) It's really phenomenal to watch, in my opinion. Yeah. What I was instantly taken uh, kind of uh, back into watching this film is for a number of years, I studied a Chinese martial art. Mm-hmm. This is kind of geeking out for a second. It's called Bagua. And Bagua Zhang is the study of the, the eight trigrams uh, that you'll see sometimes uh, put up in, on, on people's doors with a, a convex mirror, or a concave mirror to kind of ward spirits away. So that's the, it's this Taoist martial art and... <laughs> It's based on circle walking, and there's a whole scene that involves basically Qigong and Bagua walking going on there with Nainai doing this. And in Seattle, for a number of years, there was sort of the matriarch of, of Taiji, and her name was Madame Galfu. When Galfu passed several years ago, there was a large gathering of the, the Taoist martial arts that all came together mm-hmm. around her. So I'm watching this and immediately thinking back to Galfu going, Oh my gosh, this is like, this is striking so many little harpsichord notes in my heart and kind of going, wow. Um, so not only was I, I tickled to see that they were actually featuring this and they were doing it correctly. That Love was, it. that was, uh, w- was fascinating to me, but that it also was just such an endearing film, talking family, talking culture, talking the cultural divide that we don't necessarily understand here in the States and really doing it with such, uh, I want to say almost kid gloves, but at times, uh, almost an iron fist too, really driving the point home, but not in a way that you would say is offensive. No, the, um, this is the kind of movie that shows that melodrama can actually is a good thing. It can yeah. work. It's that's melodrama is not always a bad word. I mean, we t- as critics we tend to use it as a bad word when a film gets schmaltzy or mm-hmm. starts throwing on syrup or starts f- feeling fake. But when done correctly, a good melodrama is as cathartic as anything you will ever see. Yeah, it is okay to sit in a movie theater and honestly and 
honestly cry yeah. and to feel okay with that and feel like these are well-earned tears that this movie deserves. And mentioning that, so the theater that Steve and I were in last night mm-hmm. was one of the larger theaters at Pacific Place. It's, it was theater number nine. They have theater ten, uh, theater nine, and which is the one on the other side, which is even yeah, bigger, right? Eight's the biggest one. Eight, 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 is, eight, is, the eight biggest. is the monster. Yep. Nine is pretty large, too. Like mm-hmm. There was over 100, maybe 200 people that we were packed in with. Uh, large Asian community. The row behind us, multiple sniffles happening from about two-thirds of the film all the way through. And, uh, you know, it's just past the tissues. This this film was effective. It was hitting its mark. And I, I, th- I think... Uh, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Don't steer away because of that. Yeah. Yes, a film like this can be heart-rending and yeah. heartwarming at the same time. And I would emphasize, Sarah, just to build upon your earlier comment... One of the reasons that the humor works consistently throughout, and I want to emphasize, there are a lot of laugh. laugh out loud moments in this film throughout from start to finish. The reason that it works, though, and the reason that it worked for me from beginning to end is that it's character derived. It's because all of the characters are so beautifully drawn and acted without exception that you're laughing with them mm-hmm. at their predicaments, at their perspectives, at their their little awkward moments. And there are some very mm. funny awkward moments. <laughs> but it's such a humane story that Lulu Wong doesn't have to force the comedy out of some kind of odd physical moment or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, something that's inauthentic or, or not uh, uh, integral to the storytelling. Yeah. It's all character-driven, character-derived, and it works. Yeah, I guess the one other thing I want to point out here is that a, a lot of the film that we're getting is coming through subtitles. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that the humor is working in multiple languages, subtitles and all, I think that speaks to it also in volumes. I'm coming in as a theater on this. Steve, um, guessing your theater as well. Absolutely, yeah. because the compositions throughout are also beautiful. The, uh, the color palette that she uses and the compositions, the mm-hmm. editing, first rate. Yeah. Indie Sir? films are struggling a little bit this summer. Go see this one. It's one of the best you'll see all year. Yeah. Films, period. See it in a theater. Okay. Three strong recommendations of a theater from the Squabblers on the Farewell. This next film. Everybody in the world's going to go see this one on opening day. Right. And I'm going to I'm gonna have to pull in our producer sprints on this because... I know. Sarah, the two of you are going to be at odds. Steve and you I didn't that. get we a might, We might agree. I have a sneaking suspicion that's not the case. Uh, a little birdie told me. So, now, here's the thing about this. Yeah. You saw it. Steve and I didn't see yeah. it. Sprints had a chance to catch up with oh, it. Oh, that's good. Tee this up. Tell us, The Lion King, go. Well, I mean... How do you tee up the Lion King? I mean, Simba. Exactly. If you if you don't know the story of the Lion King at this point, I mean, I don't know what you've been doing from a pop culture standpoint for the last twenty five years. Nineteen ninety four's animated The Lion King is still considered one of the greatest animated motion pictures of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily love it as much as most people do, but it's really good. The and girls, it's stunningly animated. The and girls Elton, in my high school class watched that film yeah. on, I don't know, oh, right. repeat. Of course. To the point where I think they had Laserdisc. Remember before oh, the yeah. DVD there was yeah. Laserdisc? I think the Laserdisc laser they had got like burned out. The disc oh, nice. player got burned out because of having to play that dang thing. Oh, my so sister times. ruined her VHS. So, so I yeah. mean, I get it. Absolutely believable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, I mean, Elton John and, and Tim Rice's songs are some of the best that have been ever been in a Disney film. Hans Zimmer's score is iconic at this point. Mm-hmm. The story is still basically Hamlet. But, I mean,. <laughs> But it's really good. I mean, it's it's easy to follow. You know, you got little Simba who gets rushed out of the Pride Lands because of a tragedy, and then comes back years later to take to to take the throne back from his evil uncle. Okay, that is the movie. I now, mean, you know, 
the names we're all going to know. I mean, Mufasa, Simba, uh, Timon, Pumbaa, Scar. I mean, these are all familiar, iconic characters. The big difference, though, the startling difference yes. between so this. John Favreau, director John Favreau, who did 2016's The Jungle Book, decided he wanted to try to do the same thing with The Lion King. And if you saw 2016's The Jungle Book, what he did was he made a photorealistic remake with uh, of the animals mm-hmm. and inserted a few human characters... Into the, obviously with Mowgli, Mowgli and then anybody else, but it was he wanted to see if he could do the the animated version of the, of the Jungle Book, but make it look real. Okay. And he wants to do the same thing here. It's mm-hmm. a photorealistic remake of an animated film, which does not make this movie live action. Let's be clear on that. John Favreau has already admitted that there is only one live action shot in the entire film. Yeah. It is still an animated movie. They did, but it is they, not, it's not even, I mean, it's not even the motion capture, though, of the Planet of the Apes or, or King Kong or the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. It, is a, it is an entirely animated film. Um, and the way they created it, a lot of it was sitting in almost in a VR environment yeah. where they're watching with goggles on, exactly. moving pointers. And, 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 the vo- you know, and, and all of the actors, and it's an impressive cast. You've got Donald Glover, you've got Chiwetel Ejiofor, you've got James Earl Jones returning, you got Alfred Woodward, you got, you know, um, Billy Eichner, Amy Sedaris, Seth Rogen, and I could keep, you got Beyonce. Does Matthew I mean, Broderick make an appearance in this? He does not. The only person from the original animated film that shows back up is James Earl Jones, and in some ways that's also a little bit of a problem. James Earl Jones is still James Earl Jones. He's amazing. This is CNN. And I, it's, it's really difficult to imagine anybody else being able to voice Mufasa, uh-huh. but the problem with him voicing Mufasa is everybody else is different, but Mufasa is the same, and so it makes you think about the original film. But that's 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 neither here or there, that's whatever. I mean, who cares about that? The issue is the photorealism actually takes away from the inherent drama of the movie. You don't care about the characters in the same way. You don't see it, it, it becomes lions interacting with lions. Okay. There are moments where you can't actually tell the lions apart, especially in the case of the lionesses. They hold all on. look exactly hold on, the same. Hold on a second. No, Sprint has something to say. No, here. I mean, opening. The opening o- of the movie. The opening did of the movie. You no, not cry. Everybody no, I did not cry. But, oh, excuse me. I didn't cry. That's fine. I didn't. I did not cry. But the opening of the movie, especially in IMAX, is jaw-droppingly brilliant. The movie is technically astonishing. I mean, it is very apparent that the hundreds of millions of dollars that Disney sunk into this production, that the craftsmen were all very well utilized, and they all knew their jobs, especially in IMAX. That circle of life pre-title sequence, where Simba is born and presented to the actual to the Pride Lands, is extraordinary. You can't not watch the film and and, and come away unawed by that. It is terrific, but that doesn't make the dramatic momentum of what happens throughout the rest of the movie mean anything. There is no. It, it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it's. Okay, so, so when you say doesn't work, help me understand no. what doesn't work. Well, I mean, the, it's you're just recycling all of the same scenes. Um, but and it's honoring the past. No, it is not honoring it anything. Is. It's an excuse to make money for the studio to see if they can photocopy what they did before, but do it in a photorealistic way, oh. which actually hurts the film because... You know, an actual lion can't emote the same way as an animated lion does. You do not feel the same passion. You do not feel the same concern. It just doesn't work. Okay, and I it, did hear that it said 
a lot of reviews are saying it doesn't have heart. It doesn't. But I think it amplifies the original it, because it does feel real. And But that doesn't make this it, movie good. I mean, if, if feel, all you're doing is amplifying the brilliance of the original film, that doesn't make this new film any better. You know, we could say the same thing about Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Gus Van Sant's Psycho makes you realize just how astonishingly, jaw-droppingly brilliant Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is. And it's a shot-for-shot remake that does everything exactly the same except in color. And Van Sant did it just because he wanted to see if he could and if he could pull it off. This feels like Favreau trying to do this just to see if he could, just to see if he no. could pull it off. No. And Disney is like, oh, heck, yeah, we'll definitely do this because we know we're going to make $2 billion. It is a new way of making Films. It's and never it's horrible. Been no, it's not. Absolutely not. No. This is a film where everybody, and I mean everybody, feels like they're in the Serengeti. No, they do not. You, oh, absolutely, it's a, it's a, they no. do. It's it because. I, if you feel like you're in the middle of a nature documentary, I mean, I could go watch Disney Nature's African Cats and get the exact same, you know, feelings that I got from this film. But and African Cats is actually a better film because it's real and it's really happening and they actually are real lions. But I get to do it and I get to hear music with it. Sure. And I mean, and the music is fine. It's still good. But the musical numbers don't work for the most part because they don't have the energy and the creativity and the imagination and the color and the exuberance of what they had in the animated film. Okay. That and film, I will also did you say, not laugh? Did you not laugh? I laughed so no. many times. I heard everybody chuckling. There are some great lines in there that are so pertinent. Yeah. Not really. I mean, they change oh. a few things up for the most part, but I mean, it's not like they're that great. I mean, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen actually do probably of of the of the secondary characters they probably do the best job Absolutely. and they and they actually do provide the comic relief that the that the filmmakers want. Now that doesn't mean either of them can sing. I mean, but they're not really supposed. Well, I mean, to. The, you know, the, their one song is kind of important, and Seth Rogen being. <laughs> Not <laughs> very. That's good. that's my, my best Seth Rogen. Um, so, but he, I mean, but he is—he's still a young warthog. So maybe okay. you know so that'll Sarah, change. I'm understanding you're you're clearly leaning against this one. I did not think I disliked this movie as much as I did until I actually wrote my review and I realized just how much it. Re- much like much like Beauty and the Beast from a few years ago, this movie annoys the crap out of me and i am not in the camp of people that think disney shouldn't that disney should stop remaking their animated classics i mean pete's dragon and cinderella both ended up on my top 10 of the year list so i'm not against these films i gave positive reviews to aladdin and dumbo so you're saying i just don't like it when they photocopy and they remove the heart saturday matinee no i'm saying skip it but you're not going to and and you're not going to because all of your kids are really going to want to see it and you're curious to see what a photorealistic version of this film would look like okay and you'll be amazed for about 15 minutes and then you'll be bored. I feel that. I feel the venom. So skip Can from you Sarah. feel the venom tonight? I can yes. feel the venom tonight. Sprints, where are you coming in on this? I'm going to go see it again. And so is that a rental or a theater? Theater. A theater from Sprints. We're splitting the difference on this one. So uh, where, if you had to take a just a, a general pulse of the room as you walked out, Sarah, you were clearly fuming. Yeah. I think, you, what did you feel the general gist of all, all of our other colleagues I think were? most of the colleagues were sort of like in the middle. They were They were impressed by the technical virtuosity of it okay and you know they were comforted from a nostalgia standpoint of the beats that work okay um 
but I think the majority of them would still say I'd rather watch the 1994 film, huh. but they don't necessarily have my vitriol against this one. Okay. Like I, you know, the same as mine. Okay. They're more like mezzo mezzo. We'll put a pin in the Lion King then for now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. With more live action to come. Well, yeah, oh, no, we listening. got plenty more to come. <laughs> I, and, you know, again, I'm not against this. Mulan looks great. I'm actually looking forward to Mulan next year. I think that looks fantastic. Well, well the, the jury's out because apparently they're they're missing some of the pivotal key figures that we had in Mulan, Mulan as well. Yeah, they got I mean, but, I mean, that, but, and, but uh, it makes that movie. It, that's the thing is you can't make it exactly the same. You have to actually do something different. Okay. Removing. The dragon is probably a smart thing for a live action film. It's a favorite character. I don't know. I, that being said, yeah. uh, we Can have we actually, just all cuddle. We have we have some serious business to address <laughs> okay. here. Indeed, talking with Hope Shanti and John Heldy of the series Cuddle, or is it Cuddle the series? Is there a preferred nomenclature? It's cuddle the series. Okay, so but can cuddle, you cuddle the series? You could. Okay, so yeah. while watching the series, you <laughs> yeah. can set this up for us a little bit. Uh, this is the idea of an actress who came from L.A. She's heartbroken on life, basically, and but she's also restarting herself as a therapist in cuddle therapy. Yes, and. and Hope that is you. That is me. Um, yeah. So uh, the character Dina, she has just she's re- reinventing herself, restarting her life, um, and she's discovered this therapy called cuddle therapy, which is actually a real thing. Um, we interviewed many cuddle therapists in preparing for filming the series, um, and she is so excited about this way to connect with people and to reach out to people who are feeling particularly lonely and embarks on this new journey in her life. And She's trying to reinvent herself, basically. Um, she grew up in Seattle, tried the acting life in L.A., and now she's back trying to do something new. And she has this kind of wide-eyed enthusiasm to change the world with the power of touch. But um, we always like to say the hardest person to hug is herself. <sighs> Very true. So you guys have created a series, but these are almost shorts in many ways. How did this all come about? Well, I met the creator writer Adeline Colangelo at the Austin Film Festival a few years back. Um, I love that festival. Some of my work is played there, and it's a great way to meet other writers, other filmmakers, and connect. Um, this is the first time that actually a project has actually come out of something, um, uh, you know, a friendship that began at that festival. She and I just kept in touch and we were sharing work back and forth. Um, she had a, a TV pilot called Cuddle. Um, and she said, you know, I've been thinking about getting it uh, started as a, as a web series because there were some things happening like high maintenance and Broad City um, had gotten out there. And um, I said, I was kind of joking when I said it, this would be great set in Seattle. I, I liked the comedy of it. I, I thought the main character was really strong. I liked her writing. Um, and we just kept talking about it and um, decided to to do it, to get it, just get it going independently, completely independently. Right. And this is shot in documentary style almost. How much of this, in often in documentary style, like when we see this is Spinal Tap or other things that are sort of shot in mockumentary or documentary style, some of it's scripted, some of it's not. How much of this is all scripted and how much are you guys improvising on this? This was actually um, almost entirely scripted. Uh, Adeline ha- or Adeline Colangelo is our writer. She um, is out of Los Angeles and she, who John mentioned meeting at this festival, and she's amazing and she has this very naturalistic style of writing where someone might think that a lot of it was improvised, but it actually is mostly scripted. There are like one or two little moments um, throughout the series as a whole where we 
improved and that made the cut. But um, yeah, no, overall, her it's it's just her writing that you're saying, which I think is wonderful. It's so cool to get to work with a writer who has such a uniquely natural style of writing that it makes it just so easy to to do. And John, I do have to wonder, I mean, because with your background in documentary making Made in China in, what, 2007, um, was this an easy sort of process for you to fit into, to, to take this story and and get that style working? Yeah, I love the documentary form, but I was also drawn to uh, fiction film, narrative film when I started out. Um, I happened to go, uh, my first job in film was working for Maisel's uh, Films Documentary Makers in New York City. And so I learned a lot from that experience. Um, so coming to this, actually, my the thing that I was coming off of was Browns Canyon, which was a feature film that we did that actually what did begin life in improvisation. So I think for, for years I've been sort of experimenting with how to put documentary style into fiction fiction work. So I really wanted to carry that forward into this this piece, which happened to be scripted. Hope, did you have to do any like serious research in in perfecting the cuddle or the hug theory in, in any of this? I mean, you you come from an interesting background yourself. Describe the process for you. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a background in uh, what's called ecstatic dance, which is kind of like a mix of like contact improv and just sort of like dancing however you want to. I joke. I, the first time I went to ecstatic dance, and I I come like my my name is Hope Shanti. Like Shanti is my actual middle name. Like I come from a very hippie background. The first time I walked into an ecstatic dance, I remember just being like, Oh my gosh, this is the hippiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but like with so much love, it was just it was such a cool welcome environment and it's very touch friendly like with consent and whatnot but it's just it's like your contact improv and and all these different things and like you know we'd that dance would end and we'd all do shares and then we'd like snuggle on bean bags or whatever so I was lucky enough to have a lot of this very positive um touch in in my world already and I could actually in my own life sense like when if I wasn't if I couldn't go to dance I could sense that missing and so or the impact that it had on my life I was like oh I'm like missing that that contact and um so for me and 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 through that world actually I also knew a number of cuddle therapists of some of my friends from dance had become cuddle therapists so when I heard about the series I was like oh my gosh this is so cool it's so cool people are talking about this like I can't wait to, uh, like I like you know I had my fingers crossed the second I heard about it because it was just such an amazing concept and an amazing idea and I was so excited and grateful that people were talking about this um and then so we did we interviewed uh we interviewed one of my friends and did a lot of research just to make sure that we were portraying it um in in an accurate way and then additionally it's it's been really kind of funny like Somebody asked me at our after our Northwest Film Forum screening about how this role has affected me as a person, like if it's changed the way that I and that I touch people and whatnot. And I, at first I was like, oh, you know, I don't I don't know. Like I was a very touchy person. And since then, I've really noticed how much I go in to hug people more often, like cautiously, because I still want to be respectful of other people's boundaries and whatnot. But I'm like, I'll notice where I'm even more like I, I go for the hug and not the handshake. And, mm-hmm. and it is just so funny to think about how. Rarely in in our culture, especially people just get that that like casual touch or that like non you know like a, that platonic touch or whatever you want to call it, but like safe safe touch maybe mm-hmm. is just like a really kind of nice blanket way to put it. But um, so yeah, it, it's been it's been really fun. I think that's actually very indicative too of. Uh, just human nature in general, as as people get older, especially we see with the elderly who aren't getting touched, but yeah. grew up you know with touch, and then when they're eventually in a nursing home by themselves and no one's there to touch. 
or babies who are left in a crib not getting touched, we see them withering. It, it the, the fact that touch is so important, I think so, you're really hitting on something there. So I'd like to ask a follow-up, sort of the intersection of content and structure here. You've done your first season, yeah. five episodes or five shorts, each running about seven minutes. Are you consciously trying to build in comedy and serious drama into each episode? And if so, how much of the casting of the supporting players, Hope, is involved in that because you have to play off them and they off you. Are some of them designed in advance to be serious interactions, some comedic, or or where is that balance coming from? Are you trying to do it every single time within these seven-minute universes? I mean, I love the comedy of the series. That was what drew me to it. But it's really about something at its heart. It's about isolation and connection in the digital age, I thought. Here is a woman who's like wants to change the world with the power of touch, but she herself is struggling with loneliness. And to me, that spoke to something that I think we're all kind of facing in this world of smartphones and uh, interconnectedness via the digital world. Um, you know, we're we're all trying to connect, but we're also incredibly isolated. I think and there's some definite irony in that. Um, but each of the episodes has uh, some humor, particularly in the in the cuddle interactions. Um, there's a lot going on there, and we tried to cast for that. One of the most enjoyable parts of this was was casting and finding some new actors that I hadn't worked with in Seattle who are just really funny. But there's a layer of poignancy by the we've heard from audiences that when you get to the end, you want to see what's going to happen to Dina. Yeah, yeah, and I would say like as an actor, that um, I'm sure you guys have heard this in this before, but it's like you can never approach anything as a comedy. The second you try to make it funny, it's dead it's so it's awful it's like <laughs> horrific to watch um so so i think for me a big part of it and, and john was so great in this too was just really diving into the character and what what made her lonely like what what made her want to strive so hard to connect to people and to create connection for other people and um what were her failures what were her struggles and and i think that like it's like when you when you layer in all of that and then you just do the work and a lot of it is you know it, it's just there inherently in the writing and um and in the directing of it and 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 whatnot and I think that John so cleverly cast the supporting characters who equally had this ability to to get at the heart of something but also be willing to kind of play with it at the same time and I think that's where a lot of the magic happens in this series it's a fine balance because I think episode uh, three, Laney, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but no spoilers. A particular, <laughs> a particular challenge for Dina, the cuddle therapist. Um, we did not a lot of rehearsal, but we would do some rehearsal and finding a way to make those characters really real, but also bring the humor across in that in that connection. And really, it's like that's having great actors who are in the moment and connected, and that's what we were always looking for. I got to ask, going along with that, it's a forty-minute series. When all said and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it hard to talk about this series without revealing any spoilers because it is so short? Because every every minute is valuable. Totally. Um, I, yeah, I find it hard to to. I, I could give it away like that entire episode in a heartbeat. <laughs> so I was I was having to put the brakes on there. Um, but it's it, it also that also makes it easy to watch. I mean, you can go right now and watch an entire episode in seven minutes. 
an entire season in 38. It's uh, if you're if you're exhausted by Game of Thrones, it's the perfect antidote. <laughs> <laughs> Cuddletheseries.com. So your episode or ser- this is series one that you've put together. Is the series two on deck? Is that kind of are you are you in the process of prepping for this at this point? Where does that stand? We have a ton of ideas, and I know Adeline had generated a lot of material around this idea. So we would love to do that, and the best way that we can do that is to gain an audience. So we're right now focused on building the audience for the series. So going to watch it um, and particularly liking it, commenting on YouTube, uh, all those things are really helpful. Sharing it on Facebook, building that audience. And when we have critical mass out there, we can move ahead with the next. Well, and you're about to be showcased at a fairly prestigious short film festival, if I heard correctly. Am I am I off base with that? You're right. Um, we just found out we were... Um, Showing the pilot at the Holly Schwartz uh, Film Festival in in August in Los Angeles. Yeah. So play and hope you also have done some work down in L.A. recently, which is I think there's another um, Venn diagram that crosses over between your character (laughs) and and real life. Well, that was really the funny thing. Um, I actually lived in Los Angeles uh, for six about six months uh, from 2013 to 2014. And I came home. I, I will never forget. I had a. A roommate who was a dancer my senior year of college, and when she came back from San Francisco, she was like, "Know when you need to come, like, like when you know you need to come home, it's okay to come home." And when she told me that, I was like, "No, I'm not. Like, I'm never coming home. I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna succeed." And then I came home, and it was this really kind of humbling moment for me as a person in a lot of ways, where, like, I I had to break through so much of that stigma of being the actor who goes to the big city, and and for me it was less. I mean, like, I don't think six months is really giving it your all in any. I I just I was there for six months, and I was like I. I missed Seattle. I missed the amazing crews that I get to work with up here, the other actors. Like, it's such a supportive and amazing film community. And I, I actually had this moment where I'd like run through my savings in LA and I was like, I might need to get a cafe job. And I actually had the thought in my head where I was like, I'd be willing to do that in Seattle to like get a cafe job to support a, a, a film career. And I was like, I don't think I'm willing to do that in LA. Like, and it was just so indicative to me of how much my heart really was in Seattle and and with everybody up here who is just so amazing and so supportive and so incredible. Um, and and I love trees and all the other things that come with living in this amazing sure. city. But anyway, anyway, I, I digress. Um, yeah, so that was actually another another point with the character that really struck home was even though I came back here and and I've been very successful as an actor in Seattle. It was one of originally I wasn't even moving home. I was just coming up for the summer and then going back and I started to book stuff right off the bat. And so I stayed, but it was just so. Um, I knew what that's like. And so the second that I heard that the character had quote unquote failed as an actress in in Los Angeles and had to come home, like I just I knew that feeling of of like wondering if you've given up on your dreams or wondering like how to move forward after something like that. And so I think that was just another one of the ways that I got to connect with Dina right off the bat. A custom made series. Cuddle the series. More information at cuddletheseries.com. Uh Facebook. Instagram, where else can we find you? What are the what are the yeah. locations? Where do we find you guys? At Cuddle the Series um, is our handle on both um, Facebook, so Facebook.com slash Cuddle the Series, Instagram at Cuddle the Series, and um, like, follow, share us. Again, that's how we get to make another season is if we get some traction. Um, if you have any film exec friends, no, <laughs> but, right. but it is. Yeah, just the more people who like and follow the series and share it, um, the more that we can gain an audience and then move forward into the second season, which we would love to get to create. 
Okay. So we just need everybody to snuggle up to cuddle. Yes, yes. <laughs> Hope Shanti, lead actress in this in this fantastic production that's coming together. John Hildy, director. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Cuddle the Series. You can find that again at CuddleTheSeries.com for more information. A quick recap of uh, what we've talked about this evening. The Lion King, splitting the difference. Sarah, you giving it an absolute trash Skip a recommendation. Sprint's giving it a theater recommendation. The Farewell getting three strong theater recommendations from the Squabblers. And Stuber getting two rentals and one theater recommendation uh, in the works. Sarah, what are you working on right about now? Uh, well, I have an interview with um, Riley Stearns, the writer-director of uh, The Art of Self-Defense, which is up on the site right now. I will also have an interview with Lulu Wang up in the next couple days for The Farewell. And I've got a bunch of interviews that will be up for um, Lynn Shelton's new movie, uh, it's sort, of trust. of trust, sort of trust, in the next week or so. So Sword. those will all be there, and yeah. uh, that's fun. Yeah, and then I will be spending my week next week at the Beacon Theater. That you know, we had Tommy in here last week, but I'll be at the Beacon because they're showing free movies. I was going to say free, all week. free works. Yes, the Beacon, uh, the Beacon, the, the Beacon, Beacon dot film, film, which is important to point out that yeah. we now have dot film, which is awesome. Dot TVs, right? dot so on and so forth. So the Beacon dot film, all the information that's fit to print. Steve, what are you working on? I am in pre-production, you might say, for a new series in the coming months at Edmund CC. Uh, about film music, but specifically the intersection of classic film score composers and classical music. Uh-huh. Are, you, and, are, you, are you bringing in any of the local folk that we know into this? Or is well, this... that's part of the pre-production process. Uh-huh. Yes. So we have to build this out. We'll have to see how many two-hour sessions we're going to do. <laughs> oh, man. But we're, we're going down that road, and it's going to be a long and winding road. We'll see if we can maintain some editorial control on this, because there's an immense amount of material. Talk about it. Uh, now, hold on a second, because this is piquing my curiosity. How am I going to find out about this when this becomes like, when is when this is fit to print? Where do I find out more information on this? You go to Edmonds Community College and their uh, continuing education website. They have a separate website for that, and they will provide all the particulars, dates and times and uh, locations and all the rest. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I'm stoked on this one for sure, because we have had many discussion regarding uh, a number of composers and different scores that we've heard uh, over the years. So this uh, definitely piquing my curiosity. Anywho, this has been Cinema Squabbles, episode number 91. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if you get the chance to click on over to uh, either uh, iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, giving us the thumbs up and the stars, it's always much appreciated. And uh, thanks for checking us out at cinemasquabble.com as well. For Sarah Michelle Fetters, Steve Reeder, I'm Adam Gerke, and our producer, Sprint's Arbogast. Thanks much.